Uh, right now, Charles Booker is in lead in Kentucky. Cro- fingers crossed because they've rescheduled a few times, but I'm supposed to interview him now Monday. So that, that would be nice if I could interview him on Monday. He's in the lead. And uh, Matt Jones tweeted something out that I found interesting. Matt Jones is a Kentucky or was a Kentucky sports broadcaster, very popular sports broadcaster in Kentucky. And he was considering running uh, in the primary a while ago. So uh, he actually met with Mitch McConnell. This was before Booker announced his run. And it's very, excuse me, met with Chuck Schumer. And it's very illuminating. Uh, So this is what Matt Jones uh, tweeted out yesterday. Again, was going to run uh, against Amy McGrath uh, to try and win the Democratic primary. And this is what he tweeted out. With news that Booker has pulled ahead in the Senate primary, it might be a good time to revisit my meeting with Chuck Schumer in Washington. I was meeting Schumer about the race and to talk about his selection of McGrath. So I don't know if you're going to be able to actually read uh, the parts that he put out there, but I'll read I'll read some of it to you, uh, because I think this is very instructive to see how the Democratic establishment seems to intentionally try to lose. So he wrote, I was met in D.C. by a small group of trustee advisors. As we grabbed a quick bite down the street from Schumer's office, they got they go over the talking points. He has already committed to Amy McGrath, but the senator hates contested primaries and does everything possible to avoid them. Their theory is that my performance with the D.C. donors has him worried about possible momentum, and thus he has brought me here to talk me out of running. He's talking about Chuck Schumer. And if that doesn't work, he'll try to find a way to push me out of the race. They all tell me to stand, stand my ground, give away as little information as possible, and promise nothing. The advice is good, but tempered a bit by the fact that they all want me to not mention their names due to possible retribution. So let's get to the meeting. The meeting is in uh, the Democratic Senatorial Committee building, uh, a drab, depressing row house. um, Row house across the stretch from the Capitol. Rules prohibit political business in the hallowed halls of Congress, and thus the true nitty-gritty party talks take place in old, cramped buildings such as this. Uh, a little more than 20 minutes late, the senator rolls in and greets me with a big smile. So you are this Matt Jones I have heard so much about. Again, this is Chuck Schumer meeting with this Kentucky sports host who was thinking of running against uh, Amy McGrath. He points me in the direction of his office, ups, office upstairs, and we walk towards whatever fate awaits me. I look behind me as I move towards the step, and the young man work working at the front desk makes eye contact and gives a quick smile so sports radio chuck schumer says how did you get into that so i'm going to skip around the change in topic loosens schumer up and he becomes much more casual he asks about my stances on issues concrete proof that the process for senate race is more substantial than my experience with the house then says he would like to ask me some political questions if that's okay I had been warned about this prior to the meeting. Schumer likes to feel out potential candidates by quizzing them. He quizzes them on the ideology of famous politicians. He uses it to get a sense of your political acumen. Uh, He gives potential candidates a list of names and says, if one is Jesse Helms and 100 is Paul Wellstone, where would you put these people on the ideological scale? He then reads off a list of names from Hillary Clinton to Mitch McConnell to Elizabeth Warren to Ted Cruz and gets your opinion. 
I give them my percentages, Hillary Clinton 70, Mitch 20, Warren 85, Cruz 5, and they seem to correspond to his. He asks where I am on the scale, and I say 60, a number uh, that also seems satisfactory. We move on to talking about Kentucky. I tell him about this book and the plan uh, about this book and the plan to visit all 120 counties in the state. He's shocked to learn that I'm going to visit everyone in 10 weeks, noting that he hits all uh, the counties in New York once every two years, as opposed to Mitch McConnell, who visits one county every two years. He asked me how I would go about winning if I were a candidate. To win in Kentucky, any Democrat has to win Louisville and Lexington big, compete well in northern Kentucky, and then cut the margins in rural parts of the state. What I believe I could do differently is actually win in the mountains of eastern Kentucky. I am from there, have a strong connection to the area, and understand the issues important to them. If a Democrat could win the mountains, it changes the whole political calculus of the state. McConnell is particularly vulnerable there because of his poor record. I could tell Schumer is intrigued. He cuts right to the chase. What about Amy McGrath? Can she do the same thing? Uh, no, she can't, the sports radio host says bluntly. The launch of her campaign was horrific. No one knows what she stands for, and she is running for office by trying to avoid tough stands and align, her, align herself as more favorable to Trump than McConnell. That is an insanely stupid strategy that no one believes is authentic or real, and if she util utilizes it, she will lose by 15 points or more. He asks how I would deal with Trump's popularity, and I say, I think Kentuckians respect authentic authenticity and honesty. I will say to Trump voters what I always say, on the issues we agree more than we disagree. We all want better education, healthcare, and workers' rights. The only difference is I don't like Trump and you do. That's fine, but we both don't like Mitch. To get to the point, uh, Schumer, uh, oh, so this guy says, look, if you don't mind be mind me being real, here's the deal. You guys picked Amy McGrath, not because you thought she could win, but because you knew she could raise a lot of money and would be a big help for your national ticket due to her impressive background. You don't think anyone in Kentucky can win, so why not pick her? I get it. But the reality is Mitch McConnell is beatable and you guys are too stubborn to realize it. You need someone who can relate to Kentucky and has a chance of convincing those Republicans who like Trump and hate McConnell to vote Democrat. I could do it. Schumer was taken aback. He responded quickly. We have not endorsed her and I haven't told anyone they couldn't work for you or not support you. He later admits. Schumer then looked at me and said, well, honestly, I kind of hope you do it. We need more people like you in the party. And even if you don't run, run. I hope you will keep active. Uh, he shook my hand and after more than an hour in the office, I left to fly back to Kentucky. Contrary to my expectations, Schumer wasn't there to blow me off. He was taking me seriously. All I had to admit, and I had to admit I liked him and his style. He was someone open to me talking to him directly, even if I did think he was slightly full of it. He knew McGrath wasn't working and by not standing in my way anymore, I could now decide to r decide on a run free of the obstacles. I can't find the section, but Schumer had conceded to this guy in the office that uh, he agreed that McGrath's campaign launch was a disaster and that she likely wouldn't win. Yet he poured in and he got other Democrats to pour in $40 million to her campaign, according to this guy who is a Kentucky sports radio host and knows everything about uh, Kentucky, the geographic, where you might be able to get votes away from McConnell. Basically, they were running her not to beat McConnell, but to help their national ticket. So we all know that progressives have been saying forever, Democrats 
are trying to lose? Is it possible Democrats are trying to lose? In this case, it seems Chuck Schumer was admitting almost a year before the primary that he knew the candidate he had chosen had a poor chance to run, to win, but he was picking her anyway. Which kind of, it doesn't, I, I mean, I, I know it's like the thought is that this is boosting Democrats nationwide, but I, I still don't get it. It's like these people don't, it's something that we know, but this puts it more starkly. These people don't have their fingers on the pulse of what's actually happening in this country or what people want or need. It's it's still baffling to me. I don't I don't understand why they would run someone they thought couldn't win. And in, in, in any case, I mean, McGrath is not. There's nothing you know exceptional about her that they should be, you know, throwing it all away for her. Right. And the interesting thing is, Amy McGrath had just lost a House seat. So right. you're excited about somebody who just lost for the House of Representatives that she's going to crush it and then beat Mitch McConnell, who on surface in polls uh, isn't the most popular in Kentucky, but is a huge political machine similar to the Clintons. And generally speaking, has wiped the floor with uh, moderate uh, Democratic opponents, including the last one. I think her name was... Allison uh, Lunder Grimes, I think. Um, so I think it's interesting because how many races like this are the Democrats basically running empty vessels, uh, not thinking that they could actually win, but thinking that money will come in? My thing is, well, what's the point of the money if it's not going to help you win that race? And the only thing that I could think of if you remember the Hillary victory joint, the Hillary Clinton mm. joint victory fund, Biden mm. has a uh, joint victory fund with the DNC. Uh, where does Amy McGrath's money go if she hasn't spent the whole thing? Uh. Where does all these losing candidates that get $40 million, where does their money go if they don't win? Back, I would assume, back into the Senate, whatever pack, Senate majority pack which then gets flooded into other races and uh, the Democratic and uh, possibly Joe, Biden, Joe Biden's campaign, which, right. call me cynical, that seems like a pyramid scheme to me. Yeah, that doesn't seem, <laughs> it does not seem okay. The, you know, our, our system of financing is so screwed up and the fact that you can't even, that they don't even care about winning in certain cases, yet they just care about the money it, I don't know. It's just it's a real it's a real mess. These Democrats. I don't rule Trump out completely, but the bottom line is it's looking very bad uh, for Donald Trump uh, right now. Joe Biden. It looks like he's even leading in a lot of polls in Texas, uh, Arizona. Uh, quite a lot of quite a lot of polls. We have to go into the assumption right now that Biden is going to be president, and I think that uh, this I found this very interesting. And it kind of merges with a few different things. But there was a political article basically talking about uh, why Biden is rejecting uh, Black Lives Matter's boldest proposals. I mean, he doesn't want to legalize pot, doesn't want to defund the police. He actually wants to give the police more money talking about community policing, which honestly to me is just a bull term. It's just giving more money to the police. The police don't need more money to talk to their neighbors and be human beings. That's 
kind of the idea of community policing. I don't know why you need more money for that. So uh, this political article has a few interesting things. So I'm going to read this part because it kind of merges into a few other things. Biden's uh, dismissing the social media left. Biden's uh, advisors point out that racial justice is at the heart of why he's running for president. He has often said that Trump's 2017 comments praising very fine people at a pro-Nazi rally in Charlottesville is what pushed him into the campaign. Yes, we know this man, the father of mass incarceration, uh, mass militarization of the police. Racial justice is his go-to. Quote, he's been very clear he wouldn't be running unless Trump were president, said Simone Sanders, uh, the cone turd, excuse me, senior advisor to Biden. Uh, During the primaries, Biden bet everything on winning overwhelming support from African-American voters who eventually reversed the near collapse of his campaign in the first three states. Biden advisor, Biden's advisors were often less attentive and somewhat sometimes downright dismissive of certain obsessions of the social media left, the social media left, i.e. young people, millennials, the hundreds of thousands of people marching in the streets. That's pretty much the social media left. Yeah, there's older folk who are on social media, but Twitter, uh, these kind of platforms are mostly young people, definitely Instagram. And we're going to talk about Facebook today, by the way. Uh, Biden did not discuss white privilege the way Kirsten Gillibrand did. He didn't endorse reparations or the legalization of marijuana when some of his chief rivals did. He stubbornly insisted that the two most important primary constituencies were political moderates and older working class African-Americans, two groups without much influence online. The Biden campaign's unspoken primary slogan could have been Twitter isn't real life. The cautiousness and skepticism has spilled into the general election. One way to think of the Biden campaign's navigation of racial issues is that he and his advisors care a lot more about addressing policy demands than they do about addressing cultural issues. Quote, there is a conversation that's going on on Twitter that they don't care about, one Democratic strategist observed. They won the primary by ignoring all of that. The Biden campaign does not care about critical race theory, intersectional left that has taken over places like the New York Times. You could be against chokeholds and not believe in white fragility. You could be for reforming police departments and don't necessarily have to believe that the United States is irredeemably, irredeemably racist. So I think this is interesting, Jen. Mm -hmm. And actually, before I get your thoughts on it, I kind of want to play a clip from yesterday. Let's play the clip from yesterday. Unfortunately, a lot of people didn't see this because YouTube hides it when we're live, but uh, we were live from, uh, now they have Occupy City Hall uh, in New York City, where at the moment, I believe there's over a thousand people out there occupying uh, a park next to City Hall, demanding that $1 billion be cut uh, from the New York City police budget. Why that's pretty important is because New York City's police budget, literally, literally $6 billion, biggest, uh, budget in all uh, of the country uh, right now within three or four days is the uh, budget proposal date where Mayor Bill de Blasio will be presenting a budget. So far, he has been extremely, extremely uh, resistant to changing anything. Uh, and I'm not holding my breath for him to cut $1 billion from the police budget, but you never know. So I want to play this clip because I think it has something to do with the nonsense the Biden campaign is talking about. I'm going to say it again. From the South Bronx, have y'all been in the South Bronx? And Brownsville, he's cutting out counselors in the schools and laying off teachers. Like there hasn't been a pandemic that's been ravaging our black and brown community. 
billion from the NYPD. Why? Because it's my money. It's our money. I'm sick and tired of using your money for 2,000 cops. I don't need no cops to sit around and crush their candy and swipe on their Tinder and to park in my bike lanes and to crush my community and choke me out even though the whole world is watching. I don't need no more cops in my school treating me like I'm some inmate. I don't need no more cops playing basketball and then hemming me up on stop and frisk the next day. What I need is a billion at least from the budget because it makes a lot of sense to me and you must be dumb, okay? We are not taking it anymore. We done called you, we done emailed you, you done tweeted, y'all don't got voicemail set up. It's okay, we gonna come find you on my street because whose streets? Y'all don't want to wear a mask. That's fine, because we're going to take it to you. We're not asking anymore. We're going to come and find you. we demanding a billion. No excuses. No flim flam games. Oh, we're going to take a little money from here. We're going we're gonna to amend this. We're going to get rid of undercover. We want the bread. We want the money for our communities. We want schools. We want housing. We want health care. And we want it now. And until we get it, Y'all go ahead, they mess around. Mess around if y'all want to and vote the wrong way. Go ahead and pass the budget. We will turn up all summer because we're taking it back. We're not going back inside. We're waking up. Give me my money for my communities because this is not just about the violence where you put your knee on my neck. This is the subtle violence that y'all do all the time. This is divesting from my communities. This is gentrification. This is the fact that my teachers are being laid off. This is the fact that I gotta pay for glue sticks and shit. You know what I'm saying? We want the money back. Cut it. So I'm tired. We saying defund the police, but today we're gonna uplift what we want. So the reason, the reason I played that, Jen, is because, and again, I'm just keeping it real. People can be mad at me, but at the moment, things could change. You just have to go into, you have to go into the assumption Biden's going to win. Uh, Trump is self-sabotaging. He's not changing his tone. Uh, he's not changing anything. He's not going further to the left, which I thought he would, to, on economics. So under the assumption that Biden would win, what the Biden campaign, what I read to viewers about how they're more concentrated on policy than the social media left, they're more concentrated on policy than like what people on Twitter are saying. That is the Twitter left. Like I've been covering these protests and I've been careful to say, like, I don't want to be the white guy uh, white explaining what protesters should do, but I've been saying I think the one thing missing is the specific economic demands. Of course, number one has to be stop killing us, police brutality, but followed by the economic demands, because as that gentleman just said, it's the quiet racism of cutting schools, uh, cutting food programs, this and that. Well, if Biden's campaign's view is, well, we're going to ignore the loud social media left, which, by the way, Black Lives Matter is heavily organizing through social media, and we're gonna get instead focus on policy. Well, you think that guy and the protesters I covered yesterday, you think they're down with the policy of giving, th if Joe Biden is president, 
more community, more money for community policing, not, not doing anything about marijuana, uh, cutting prisons by 8.2%, whatever neoliberal foolishness is going to come out. Like this movement is going to continue and get bigger into a potential Biden presidency. And I think they're confusing. Like, I think they view that as the Twitter left and are not realizing that this is becoming more than just a police brutality protest from the stuff I saw yesterday. They're going straight for the neoliberal order. Yeah, and I, I think that's a good thing. I think that's a really needed thing is is to realize police brutality has to be focused on. It's really, really important. But until the um, economic systemic systemic suppression is addressed, nothing really is going to change. And Jordan, I sent you an article last night um, from Jacobin. It was like, beware the black corporations that's not an exact title but essentially it was like beware they, they very well could have uh titled it beware the joe bidenification of of these protests meaning don't just accept how the corporations are putting up black lives matter or a, a black square on their social media and accepting that as real change People want to go far beyond that. We need to go far beyond that. And it, it has to happen. And, and Joe Biden and his ilk, they don't they don't understand that. They they see these these young kids on social media and and assume that, oh, they're just Bernie bros. They're just radicals. I don't think they really see that this is the, the power that this has. People are realizing how that it's not just the, the surface oppression, it's things that, that white people especially have not realized has been going on since the start of our country. So I think Joe Biden is has a lot of hubris. Uh, I think he's very out of touch with what's actually going on with these protests and the reason for these protests. So I don't know, you, you seem, Jordan, kind of like hopeful that these protests will keep going. And um, if, if Joe Biden does become president, I'm not so sure. I, I think a lot of people, especially older people, older black people, and again, we never want to tell black people how to protest, but I think they'll be placated by, um, and in particular, I saw a tweet yesterday from a black guy saying, the reason we want to vote for Joe Biden is because he was willing to take the, like, the second chair to Obama um, for eight years, he was willing to do this. Like he's clearly not a white supremacist. He clearly gets black issues because he was second in command to um, Obama. So I'm hoping that the fire continues. I I do think it will um, among the young crowd, but I think there's there's there are a lot of issues at, at play here, and um, I'm hoping that if Joe Biden does in fact win, that the fire does continue because these issues are so. It's so complicated and it really, really need the economics need to be addressed. Uh, I actually I mean, when you look at these protests, no offense to my older viewers, they're 75 percent people under 40. So I don't think uh, I don't think people are going back to sleep. I actually think you have an even uh, equal, if not better, boogeyman 
uh, in Joe Biden as a potential president than Donald Trump uh, because of the crime bill, uh, because of the, la you know, the tone deafness, still saying the crime bill has nothing to do with mass incarceration, uh, disagreeing to defund the police, actually proposing to give police more money. He's not going to be for cutting the military budget, which I think uh, Bernie is smartly putting on the table right now. I know some people want more than a 10% cut, but even to get a 10% cut in this environment would be a modern miracle. So let's start with that. I also want to show something, because I think there's an added aspect. Can't get in Bernie's head, and obviously there's been people criticizing Bernie. But Jen sent me this earlier, and this is part of what people were criticizing Bernie on during this pandemic. People criticize Bernie because you drop out, you do this hostage take video with Biden. Oh, you're saying all these nice things about Biden, but you're not utilizing your army, this huge army you had. I did a story on it. Uh, the email list, your Slack channel. Well, uh, could be misreading that, but it looks like uh, Bernie's getting the band back together. Uh, this is addressed to Jen. Uh, during our campaign for president, our historic grassroots movement, blah, 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 blah. Uh, now more than ever, it is critical uh, that we all stay engaged and involved in our communities. That's why we're so excited to announce that we will be opening our volunteer Slack to help continue, to help continue coordinating and organizing for needed progressive change in this country. Uh, Slack is an easy way to blah, 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 blah. So why I'm bringing this up in the context of if Biden were president, Bernie's Slack had 70,000 active members. That's more than the Democratic Socialists of America, like national organization, which has been growing extensively. So if Bernie is reopening his Slack, which Jen, you know more about Slack than I, but can be used for email marketing, digital organizing, phone banking, you know, organizing phone banking, uh, helping local campaigns, I mean, you name it. It seems to me he would be opening it now, not just for progressive things like ballot measures, you know, maybe working, uh, helping lift the Paula Jean Swearingen's of the world in her race, if uh, Charles Booker is officially the nominee against McConnell, but building out this progressive apparatus for if it is a President Joe Biden, and if he is a reincarnation of Obama, only worse with Jamie Dimon as Treasury Secretary, and all these vultures coming in, it would seem to me, makes sense to me, that's what Bernie is doing. Not just to use it now, but to have his army uh, activated if and when Biden becomes president and the inevitable happens and he gives the fucking bird to the <laughs> progressives. You know, this, I am personally, as a human being, I'm the biggest Bernie stand that could ever be because of his policies. But I am really upset. Don't don't, don't tell Jimmy. <laughs> oh, you have little Bernie. Um, so mine's still in the box for collector value. <laughs> but I have to say, I'm I'm really again, as a, a human being, a progressive human, I'm really irritated with Bernie and his campaign, whoever he has around him these days, that it's taken this long. Why on earth has this enormous slack not been used already? It's been months since Bernie dropped out. Why hasn't he been using this to boost progressives all along? Why hasn't this been used for grassroots organizing all along? Why did it take until, you know, I received that email yesterday because it's in the volunteer Slack um, for, to monitor it. Why did I just receive that yesterday? And 
it hasn't been utilized all along. So I, I like there's a lot of criticism to have with Bernie right now that a lot of momentum that people had could have been used and wasn't. It's good. You know, I can't criticize that, that now they're opening it back up. That's a good thing. Um, but, a, but if people are out of the habit of doing something, there were people who the first thing they did was check that Slack every single day. There were people who had those notifications turned on on their phone and they were religious about checking those, doing the action items that the Bernie team had for them. Why was that stopped? It's great that it's gonna be used now, but a lot of the momentum they had is gone. Right, uh, I can't answer that. And you know, I got some grief for the piece I wrote uh, on statuscoup.com. Yes, we have a website, go mm -hmm. there. Uh, but you know what? I can't answer that. I, I've heard many different things from different people in Bernie's campaign. One was he was burnt out. Another was he's a human being. He's been fight. You know, he's been in this fight for 40 years and he f was on like the cusp of actually winning for once. So it's a huge defeat as a human being uh, to be that close and lose. Uh, but either way, at least he is finally coming out of witness protection. We saw him on the Senate floor putting the proposal together on the defense budget cut, now putting this Slack group back together. And for people that don't understand or like, so what, he's putting together uh, a Slack group, whatever. No, this is how you organize. And it is not easy, folks. I mean, status quo, we've been around two years. We're trying to build our email list. I don't even think we've cracked 5,000 yet. We're we have, we have. Oh, we have? Okay, sorry. Yeah. We're trying to, we're trying <laughs> to build our text list, for example. Uh, if you don't know, sign up, text C-O-U-P, to 370-370. We keep saying it and saying it and saying it. I think we're just over a thousand. So it's hard to build lists. So the fact that he's got 70,000 human beings, not just like signed up, but that were actively like in the Slack group saying, what can I do? That's like, consider that just like turbocharged for campaigns that need help, uh, on the ground progressive groups that need help. Black Lives Matter groups that need help, Latino groups that need help, you name it, uh, within the law, obviously. I don't really know, like, is this part of Friends with Bernie? Is this part of our revolution? I think it would be part of Friends with Bernie, uh, which is like a uh, extended campaign committee. But the point is, this is what progressives need, because the only way you're gonna defeat these establishment candidates is to out-organize. And I think in the case of Jamal Bowman, we saw, yes, it's about organizing, but you also need to capitalize on opportunities. I was saying yesterday, Jen, Bowman, unlike Bernie, frankly, he got an opportunity. Uh, Elliot Engel putting his foot in his mouth saying, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask mm -hmm. if I wasn't had in a primary. And he hit him. He did ads going at him for this. Justice Democrats put, uh, went on the air for him uh, attacking Elliot Engel. He went negative and it worked. Uh, and by the way, going negative then got media attention because the media covered uh, Bowman going after Elliot Engel for, you know, the out of touch comments of, oh, I wouldn't be asking to speak if I didn't have a primary. And then there was a story about him not even being in his New York district during COVID. So you got to capitalize when you have opportunities, which Bernie didn't. You know, did he ever run any ads? Joe Biden telling Wall Street donors, you know, I'll fluff your pillows. Nothing's going to change. No. I mean, Biden gave him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. So did Buttigieg. And he chose, you know, we, we have gone over this, but I think it's a good thing that he's reestablishing this Slack group uh, because it's, a, it's, it's not about Slack, it's about organizing. You have the bodies, you have the numbers, 
And on the local level, congressional, Senate, uh, local, you know, state assembly, state senates, you have this army to help various, uh, various um, causes. So that's a good thing. Speaking of Jamal Bowman, Jen, I don't know if you saw this, but Ellen, Aaron Burnett interviewed him last night. This was painful. <laughs> this was painful. So Jamal Bowman, and I said this the other day. Hey, Jen, do you think if Elliot Engel on election night was up 26 points, CNN would be careful and not declare victory? Of course not. They would have been having a party with bazookas. <laughs> okay, so let's watch uh, courtesy of, I think, Case Study, who watches CNN and MSNBC all day and cuts clips so uh, we don't have to. Uh, let's, la- let's watch Aaron Burnett's uh, interview with Jamal Bowman. See if you see any patterns here. Tell me why. The year, one of the top Democrats in Congress may be on the verge of losing his seat after a primary. Elliot Engel from New York, the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, currently trailing progressive challenger Jamal Bowman, 61 percent to 34. He's down nearly 12,000 votes, and that's before absentee ballots. It's clearly an ominous sign for Engel. He has been in Congress since 1989. Chair of a committee, this is obviously a very, very major upset uh, as these numbers come in, if this is what happens. Jamal Bowman is now out front, and I appreciate your time. Um, Jamal, you've declared victory in an email to supporters. Obviously, as I said, because of those absentee ballots, we haven't yet formally projected a winner uh, because there's so many absentee ballots. But you're very confident uh, that you've won. Tell me why. Well, uh, the voters have spoken uh, and they've spoken uh, throughout the district. Uh, When you look at our district, it's broken up between the northeast Bronx and lower Westchester County. And right now we're winning uh, the North, Northeast Bronx about the North Bronx, excuse me, by 29 points. And we're winning uh, Westchester County about 23 to 25 points. Uh, so we're, we're doing very well. Um, and there's no statistical reason to believe that uh, the mail-in ballot count is going to be much different than what we are, what we're already seeing. And you fought hard. And, you know, if you're the winner here, This is not the way a lot of people thought it was going to go, to state the obvious. Governor Cuomo endorsed Congressman Engel. Uh, Senate Minority Leader Schumer endorsed him. Uh, The House Speaker Pelosi endorsed him. Uh, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, the current chair of the House Democratic Caucus, senior member of the Congressional Black Caucus. What do you say to them tonight? (laughs) Well, you know, again, the people have spoken. You know, we worked really hard from the very beginning of the campaign to build deep, authentic relationships with people across the district, across race, across class, across religion, across age, uh, again, from Co-op City to Eden Wall to Ryan, New York. Uh, so we did that work very urgently in the very beginning. We had hundreds of volunteers uh, working with our campaign, knocking doors, uh, leafletting, making phone calls. Uh, so those relationships matter. And we, we've always felt confident. Uh, I find this interesting because a cable news segment, you're lucky if you get five minutes, she spends two minutes basically making it seem like, are you sure you won? You're only up by 25 points. Why should, you know, what makes you think you actually won? Like, it's pretty much a mathematical impossibility. The absentee ballots are going to turn it completely around. And we have seen them literally call races. Bernie Sanders is down by one-tenth of a point in Iowa. It's over. Uh, Bernie Sanders down one-tenth of a point. It's over. Uh, progressives down. That, we, we've seen enough. We're calling it. I mean, it's, it's, it's just showing you that the media sways elections. I mean, they called it for Joe Biden in Texas when there were still 
out people's people waiting in line for hours and hours and hours, it's showing you they will not do the same if it's a corporate candidate on the losing end. They absolutely won't. And, you know, we we've seen this over and over again, where, you know, back when Bernie was still in the race, the hesitation to declare anything for Bernie or to declare anything for any progressive um, out of the box candidate is is really there. It's really present. It's there before the election. It's there after the election or the primary. Um, so the the fact that, like you say, like Aaron Burnett took up the majority or almost the majority of that interview with with hesitation, like, are you sure about this? Are you sure that this is a, a win for you or a positive thing for you? And she just can't handle the possibility that the people have spoken differently than the establishment has spoken. Let's play a little bit more because it gets better. And the protests, which also have defined so much of this race, you have joined those calling to defund the police. So I wanted to play for you part of a conversation I had with a Democratic congressman and House Majority Leader Jim uh, Whip, Jim Clyburn. He wants police reform, but but here's what he told me about how he views the defund movement. Here he is. History is instructive. I was there along with John Lewis back in the '60s and, and the early '70s. We saw how our movement got hijacked. We did a lot back then that led to where we are today. We would have done even more if we had not got overtaken by sloganary, burn, baby, burn, that took off in this country. Be careful that we don't get hijacked this time like we got the last time. What do you think when you, when you hear his thoughts? Well, defunding the police is about a reallocation of resources. It's about a demilitarization of the police and investing in public health, investing in housing, investing in jobs, investing in education and health care and environmental justice, uh, investing in mental health supports. You know, 50 percent of those killed by the police suffer from some mental or physical disability. Uh, what that means is we need to take a different approach, not a lethal approach. Uh, defunding the, p the police also means uh, the end of sending military equipment uh, to local police forces that they then right. use uh, on people within the community. So it's not defunding as a rallying cry, but what it means is it's a reallocation of resources hmm. toward public health and other areas that we've neglected for quite some time. So it sounds like what you're saying is you understand his point. Sometimes words can come to, to mean something to people that may not actually be what you're saying. I mean, you're saying reallocate. You're not saying you don't want police, I, I'm presuming, right? You're not saying you don't want police providing safety. You want them to be trained differently and behave differently. Going away? Well, there's a role for police, but I push back on the notion that, you know, police and safety have to go hand in hand. Mm, uh, when okay. we talk about safety, the number one thing that makes me safety and safe, safe and secure is making sure that I have food security, housing security. Yes. Well, I appreciate mm. your time and, and explaining thank it. You. And thank See how fast she rapped when he started talking about food security and housing security. It was quite the thing. Uh, first of all, I like that Jamal Bowman doesn't start with the pleasantry as well. I respect Clyburn, blah, 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 blah. I don't respect Clyburn. Sorry. Uh, he's corrupt. Look at his donor sheet. He accepts a whole lot of money from Big Pharma. I know he's, you know, black and respected in South Carolina. That's wonderful. 
Maybe he was more pure back in the day for progressive causes, but he's the one uh, who, you know, really put forward Biden. And frankly, Biden has done more to damage his community than most other politicians. So I like that Bowman isn't starting out with the kissing ass to the establishment. I mean, it's still early, so he could get there. But right now, he's not. Uh, The other thing is, uh, I mean, again, Aaron Burnett spends two minutes basically, you know, disbelieving just math. And then as soon as he mentions, like, the point, we need to take money from the police and give it for food security, uh, housing security, these kind of things. She just wraps the interview. Uh, I mean, what more can you say? Clearly, uh, they're not interested in actually understanding why these types of candidates are, are catching on. What I was saying is Aaron Burnett spent so much time trying to catch Jamal Bowman and making sure his surge didn't seem like trying to downplay his surge. And then she spent the rest of the time trying to catch him in not understanding what his own movement is about. And Jamal Bowman knows exactly what this movement is about because he's been on the front lines out there on the streets with the people, often putting his body in between police officers who were not always uh, nonviolent, putting his body out there in the front, negotiating, making sure that people's voices were heard while being present, while being eyes on the ground, eyes and ears and camera he would be filming. He uh, seems to be a person who, who walks the talk. He does what he's talking about. So for Aaron Burnett to try to catch him in in a lie or to back him in a corner and saying, okay, defund the police doesn't actually mean X, Y, Z. Defund the police actually means this. Let me play Clyburn for you so I can I can back you into a corner here. But Jamal Bowman, he's, he's good at what he does, but he's also, he's a man of the people. And he has truly been out there in a way that most politicians are not. He's, he again, put his body on the line and that was disgusting what, um, what Aaron Burnett did. That interview, I had not seen it. Um, she just, you can tell that these people have such a contempt for realness. They have such a contempt for progressivism and for any voice that actually speaks for the public. Indeed, I agree.